Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. As you know, Lyme disease is um, something very important to me, and May is Lyme Awareness Month to discuss um, recent... what's going on with the politics of Lyme. We are talking today with Mary Beth Pfeiffer. She's been a journalist for four decades and her new book, Lyme, the First Epidemic of Climate Change has just been released. Mary Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. Uh, so, um, you know, I want to uh, thank you for writing this book. I think it, it's been a while since we've had something as thorough as what what you've written. And, um, you know, even in, in reading your book over, it seems like a lot hasn't even changed. Um, so and we're going to talk a lot about that. Um, but thank you so much for bringing this, uh, the awareness to this this issue. Uh, it's it's um, my uh, delight to to uh, expose this really because this is a situation that needs investigative reporting and I I am I like to say the first investigative reporter without chronic Lyme disease you know totally an outsider to do this sort of expose. Well, um, you know, as a, a survivor of of Lyme disease, um, reading your book was. Yeah, it was, it was uh, you know, I was, I was enthralled. I actually couldn't put it down. I spent a whole day just reading it this weekend. Um, and uh, I, I, I encourage anybody, even if you're not affected by Lyme, just that what you bring forward in the book is really important for us all to know because even if we haven't been infected or affected or a family hasn't been affected, it's going to be in the upcoming years. Well, that that really was my goal, to write a book that would be accessible and readable for most people, people who aren't scientists. I'm not a scientist. I had to wade through a lot of science. Um, But what I did was translate that, that science and the politics and the patient stories um, into a, a narrative, into a book that I think um, is readable. As you say, you know, people have told me they can't put it down, which you don't really say for uh, a nonfiction book <laughs> on a very prevalent disease. Um, but yes, my goal is to bring it to the general public, not just to people in Lyme support groups who know the danger of ticks. Other people have to know that these eight-legged creatures, which I call disgusting, um, are out there, and there's lots of them, and they're moving around. Well, you know, I I got very itchy when I was reading your book. (laughs) I I was inside. But, you know, there's something when you're explaining everything that just, even though I I thought I knew everything, it it turns out I I didn't. Um, And I I think one of the things that really got me was that the infected ticks are more likely to find the prey than the uninfected ticks. Yes. Isn't that amazing? Um, They... um, had more body fat, they found in, in a scientific experiment. Uh, they lived longer. Infected ticks do very well out in the wild. And that's just one aspect of this whole picture uh, of how this Lyme disease pathogen has managed to evolve over millions of years, literally. And um, is able to live not only in the in a cold tick, but in a warm-blooded mammal, and in between to um, survive in the tick, you know, when it hides under the snow, when it's hibernating and so forth. And beyond that, it has amazing capabilities to survive in the human body, to hide from antibiotics, to um, lay low under things we call biofilms, which basically are these a matrix of cells that protect them when they are being um, attacked by antibiotics. And I guess we'll get into a little bit more about the treatments. But yes, you're right. This is an amazingly adaptive and talented organism that we are fighting today. 
You know, the more I learn about Lyme, you know, when there's new things like the infected ticks can find us because they have the Lyme infection, um, you know, it, it it baffles me that we're in so much denial. And I guess we'll get to that later. But I, I just, this is such a, a intelligent infection. And when I was first diagnosed and, and um, started reading about it, I realized how much smarter it is than, than we are because we're dying from it and, and we're in complete denial that it's even there. Yes, and there is good research being done to try and figure out how the Lyme spirochete, it's called a spirochete, which is basically a, a corkscrew-shaped, single-celled um, bacterium, um, and, and, and we're trying to figure out how it evades our immune system, how it gets past all these sort of gatekeepers that norma- normally um, keep bacterium down, fight them off, and a- enable us also to fight them off after we've been infected and develop antibodies. But um, through tests of um, mice, for example, we, we learn of ways that the um, uh, pathogen can really get around, can actually disguise itself, can sort of wear a different coat so it's not recognized by our immune system. And that's really great research. As a, a, a researcher out at um, UC Davis in California who's doing a lot of that by the name of Nicole Baumgarth. But the problem, the overall problem is we haven't spent enough money to research Lyme disease. Um, it, it came around right around, around the same time as the HIV virus was identified. Two years apart, they were both identified. But Lyme disease has been long considered for way too long as sort of as a, a nuisance disease, um, relatively easy to diagnose and treat. And I found in my research that it is nothing of the kind. It is not easy to diagnose, not easy to treat. Okay, well, so so let's talk about it. First, um, for anybody who isn't aware of Lyme disease, although thank goodness there's way more press and people are more aware, um, just to exactly, you know, wh- what is it? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, a bacterial infection. It's delivered by the bite of a tick. Um, it's, it's usually the, it's the black-legged tick. Um, has different um, species of, of, of black-legged ticks around the, the world. And, in fact, there's the, the Tega tick and there's the castor bean tick uh, in Europe and in China that it, uh, are infecting many people. They're cousins to the black-legged ticks that we have um, here in the U.S. and in Canada. And um, when they... Um, emerge from an egg, uh, you know, one adult will lay 2,000 eggs, they're, they're basically clean. They don't have the infection. They take their first blood meal, usually from a mouse that is infected with Lyme disease. Then they turn into juveniles, um, the second of the three stages. The last is the adult. But for human beings, the juvenile stage is the most dangerous because that's when that, that little tick climbs up a, a blade of grass we walk by and brush up against it. It, it climbs up our leg, and um, it is so very small, like, like the end of a, a sentence, a period, that we usually don't see it. And we don't feel it either because when it bites us, um, just like the, the pathogen itself, the tick has a, a lot of uh, incredible talents. It um, basically numbs the little um, part of our skin where it bites us, so we don't feel it. Um, it has uh, the ability to stop our blood at that site from coagulating because that would otherwise stop the, the, the blood from flowing into the tick. Um, so it does these things. It, it bites us. Um, it falls off maybe after 48 hours. That's, uh, you know, they basically say 24 to 48 hours is what it takes to, to transmit the disease, though some people argue it's much sooner. Um, and then, you know, in a couple of weeks, um, you may get a rash or you may not. And you're the lucky one if you get the rash because then you, you, you have a very clear indicator that you are infected. That rash is like a positive test. It tells the doctor if the doctor is informed enough, and sometimes they're not, but if the doctor is informed and you present with that rash, whether you know you were bitten or not, 
you should be treated. There are a lot of pitfalls, though, to this picture of diagnosis. And um, I'm sure we can talk a little bit more about that. But as far as the, the, the bite goes, it's often very surreptitious. And that's really the dangerous part of this. We don't get treated early. We don't see it. Um, so um, is a tick bite the only way that we can get Lyme? Well, there, there are some theories out there. Um, but again, the science is, is not conclusive because not enough science has been done to show that it is possible that it is transmitted from an infected mother to her baby in utero. There have indeed been case reports of that, and there have been babies who have uh, died as fetuses, uh, rather, and fetuses who have died in utero, in which they have found the spirochete in um, the fetus. Um, but it, this is not something that is generally um, accepted in the medical literature. There's still a great deal of debate about congenital Lyme disease. Um, there's some suggestion it's sexually transmitted. Again, um, very, very little data to support support that and accept you know uh, accept it in the medical literature. Um, you know, some people have said uh, there have been some scientists who have said that it is transmitted by other uh, vectors like a mosquito, but uh, I remain very much unconvinced. Well, you know, I think as as someone who treats Lyme, I think it's either um, that it is sexually transmitted and passed in utero, or we have an epidemic, or both. Because mm-hmm. when you're treating a whole family infected with Lyme, it can't be as rare as they're saying. It's surely not rare. Um, and yes, there are. I, I have interviewed um, parents um, uh, who themselves, uh, one or the other of the parent, usually the mother, will have um, Lyme disease, and many of the children have it as well. Um, there seems to be, and this is another thing we need to look into, some sort of um, sensitivity to it in terms of maybe genetics, um, in terms of our immune systems. Some people are hit much harder than other people. Um, but the, the numbers certainly suggest epidemic is, is the word for this. I mean, in the U.S., we had 36,000 cases in uh, 2016. You multiply that by 10 because there is an, an undercounting of the disease that is acknowledged by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control that for every one case that is reported, there's probably um, 10 more. Um, so, um, you know, it, it, it is very widespread. Um, it is very prevalent. The the um, risky places are where it's emerging, even riskier than here. I mean, it's certainly a problem here in the U.S. where I am. Um, in so far as doctors, at least in my area of New York State, knowing it's here, but it's also spreading to Canada, spreading widely in Canada, um, spreading in the U.K., um, spreading in in Russia and um, Turkey. I get a lot of um, inquiries from patients in Turkey. Um, and in these places where the doctors haven't been alerted to a great enough degree of the hazards of letting an infection fester, of waiting to test, of waiting to treat, these are the problematic places even more so than where it is thoroughly entrenched like where I live in New York State in the Hudson Valley. Well, one thing I, I know that happens, I'm in Canada, and um, there is studies showing that there are infected ticks in my area. But there's there's a, a response from the medical community um, that's not, not just them saying, oh, it's pretty rare that you couldn't have that. They actually say they don't believe in it. That, that disheartens me. Um, I think what they they're saying is they don't believe it's there where you live. Is that is that the case, or they they no. certainly have to believe in the disease? No, you know? they 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 say they I don't believe in Lyme. It's not a oh, thing. 
Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> so it's well, not even it's not here. So you couldn't have it. You know, excluding they don't even look at travel history. Um, it, you know, and and I hear this almost every day. So it's um, it is disheartening, and there's a bit of a, a backlash in in I think all of Canada, from what I gather, um, that this is um, not something we, that we even need to consider. Well, yes, um, there is that belief. It's not here. I'm not going to bother to look, um, which is part of the reason why the numbers, the case reports, stay low, because doctors may not believe that it, it's in their area, that there are infected ticks. And one of the reasons, another of the reasons, besides that they don't look for it, the numbers are low, is that there is something called the surveillance definition for Lyme disease. And in Canada, I believe it's almost identical to what it is in the United States. And that means that someone has to present with a Lyme disease rash or they must test positive on the two-tier test. And the two-tier test is the test uh, that uh, has been uh, validated and licensed by the U.S. um, Federal Drug Administration. It's the one that's endorsed by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, and it's pretty much the one that's used um, in most um, um, industrialized nations where you have Lyme disease. And it's very difficult to test positive for Lyme disease at certain stages of the disease. Very early in the disease. Go ahead. I want to go. I want to go into that, but we have to take a quick break. So we'll we'll talk about it when we come back. We're talking right. today with Mary Beth Pfeiffer, and we're discussing her book, Lime. And we'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Mary Beth Pfeiffer, and we're discussing her her book, Lyme, The First Epidemic of Climate Change. So, Mary Beth, before the break, um, we got into a little bit about how Lyme disease is tested, and I think that's really important to talk about. Uh, So, can you just explain that to us, what's going on there? We have relied on the same technology to um, diagnose Lyme disease as we have since 1995, and, and there has been discussion for many years and, and scientific studies as well. 
to the effect that this test misses many cases of Lyme disease. Um, it's well acknowledged that in the first two to four weeks of infection, perhaps 30 to 40% of people will correctly test positive. So the, over, the majority of people who are positive will not test positive on this test. So if you don't have the rash, but you do have symptoms, it's tick season, the doctor may say, uh, let's wait a while, let's retest. Later on, there is little doubt that the test does get better, but it's not until what they call the late disseminated stage that it is at its best performance. And then you may have 90 to 100% um, accuracy in terms of correct positives. But still, it misses some cases even then, in particular, uh, in particular um, a form of Lyme disease that um, manifests itself manifests itself as a neurological Lyme, has neurological symptoms. Um, so, you know, we basically have known that this test fails at different um, stages of the disease and that the, the overall premise of it is to wait, we'll test later. Um, and, and, and that in, its, in and of itself is a very dangerous concept because that allows the spirochete to move throughout the body. It is known to quickly leave the bloodstream, and um, subsequent tests then may not be able to pick it up because it has left the bloodstream. It hides in joints. It um, can go to the heart. It can cause Lyme carditis. It can cross the blood-brain barrier. So we've known for a long time we need a new test. Um, A um, task force is actually meeting in Washington, D.C., they, they put out their first subcommittee report just last week. They said, we need to retire this test. We need a new test. And just getting back to reports of Lyme disease in Canada and elsewhere, if they rely on this test to count cases of Lyme disease, we know, we know that there are many, many more cases of Lyme disease among people who don't meet this very high threshold of testing positive. So, um, you know, we know that people are being missed and they're not being test positive. Um, my experience in Canada, um, of course, any testing done outside of Canada gets ignored and our test is not um, very accurate. And when, when people get a positive test, they're told it's a false positive and then nothing happens either. That is a- another key flaw of the test. The test does not tell a physician whether... Um, you're po- if you're positive, whether it's a current infection or a past infection. That is a huge problem with a test um, that we use for diagnostic purposes. And we do have cases in which people are, mo- are um, infected multiple times. You may not be infected just once in your life. You may be infected several times. So the doctor will look at that test result and say, um, I don't think you're sick, I don't think you have Lyme disease, even though you have a positive test, I'm not going to treat you. And this, um, Rebecca, goes back to what you brought up before, doctors, you know, rejecting the idea of Lyme disease. They don't believe in it, quote unquote, which is absolutely ridiculous because Lyme disease is a disease and um, there's a a wealth of of scientific literature about it for sure. I mean, even the, the CDC and your health authorities recognize it. But what they are um, referring to, what they are likely influenced by, is the controversies that have swirled around Lyme disease for years. Um, it has been maintained um, in, um, by the CDC and by um, a group called the Infectious Diseases Society of America, which is the medical um, organization that wrote the original and um, subsequent Lyme disease care guidelines that doctors follow, they maintain that a single course of antibiotics generally kills the pathogen in the human body. End of story, you don't have Lyme disease anymore. And that may indeed be the, the case for some people. And in fact, for many people who are treated early, they have a good outcome. Um, the estimates are um, 80% go on to recover 
treated early, you know, um, rash seen, doctor diagnosis, they get the pill, pills, and, and end of story. The controversy um, surrounds the other 10 to 20% who do not get well, who continue to have lingering symptoms. And that is what we call chronic Lyme disease. Um, it's rejected by the um, Infectious Diseases Society of America insofar as the contention that the Lyme spirochete continues to live, that you continue to be infected. Um, so it, it's, it's basically been kind of swept aside because it has become so controversial that doctor, doctors are afraid sometimes to diagnose Lyme disease early, but they certainly don't want to touch it later on on when it gets um, advanced to its advanced stages. So, uh, I mean, this is what we're talking about right now is termed the Lyme Wars. And there's a little more to it as well of, of doctors not wanting to touch it. Can you just explain to us what actually has happened to some doctors that do treat chronic Lyme? Mm-hmm. Well, when I began looking into Lyme disease in 2012, I had been an investigative reporter for many years I had a long track record of of looking into serious, heavy subjects of corruption and malfeasance and and injustice in society and so forth. And um, I um, wanted to look into Lyme disease mainly because I knew that I could get my dog uh, vaccinated for Lyme disease, but but not myself. Um, So that's kind of my starting point was was look into why there's no vaccine. And I opened up a can of worms and found people who who, um, went to 5, 10, 15 doctors could could not get treatment for late-stage Lyme disease. And then I went to the doctors who were treating, the very, very few who were actually treating Lyme disease. And um, their um, protocols were more or less to give longer courses of antibiotics, though that, that was solely not the the way they were treating patients, but by and large, they were treating with longer courses of antibiotics. And they were getting reported to the medical authorities uh, in New York State, where I'm, I'm based. It's called the Office for Professional Medical Conduct. And in some cases, these doctors had been under investigation by the licensing authorities for years, um, you know, five, six, seven years hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on medical, on uh, legal fees. Um, often the result would be that um, they were found to ha- have had some um, uh, record keeping, um, you know, minor technical um, uh, charges that were ultimately placed against them. But the reasons they were put through this ringer uh, of uh, professional investigation of spending you know, many, many dollars on legal fees was because they were treating Lyme disease outside of the um, accepted medical protocols. So, you, you know, the the thing that, that's baffling is the studies, I, I believe you said 80% um, recover if they're treated quickly. So then we have 20% who haven't recovered. And say if this was a strep infection or say you had a UTI, um, it would be okay to treat with a longer course of antibiotics if the infection was still showing up in culture. So um, it's baffling to me that this infection can't be treated longer um, if it's still showing up. Well, yes, it, it is quite baffling. Um, I guess it probably goes back to there have been a couple of four actually major clinical trials, meaning um, experiments in which they um, did give people with lingering Lyme symptoms longer courses of antibiotics, usually three months of antibiotics, part of it which was administered um, intravenously. Um, the results of these trials were basically to find that it didn't cure the infection and they didn't see great um, improvement in the patients. In the, the last two, the most recent um, trials in 2003 and in 2007, there was some um, uh, improvement reported, but there was also some adverse if- events. So that largely wiped out 
the improvements. And by adverse events, I mean people had side effects of the treatment itself, usually infections from the intravenous um, administration. But those trials have been um, re-examined and um, critiqued um, in some scientific papers that I've read. And um, they were considered to have uh, overestimated the effects of the adverse effects of the treatments. There's also a case to be made that intravenous um, administration of antibiotics and any other drug has vastly improved over the last decade. Um, There are, are ways that we know that are better to do this, that avoid infection. The other problem with the trials is that they didn't consider that some of these patients may have also been infected by other things that are in the bellies of ticks that bite us. Um, These are the uh, infections that many Lyme specialists um, will treat along with Lyme disease. Um, We know that that, um, the ticks that carry Lyme disease also may carry um, something called Babesia, which can cause a uh, an illness an illness and sorry an illness that is uh, similar to malaria. Um, we know that they can carry Bartonella. Um, Bartonellosis is a, a very serious um, infection with um, similar uh, manifestations to Lyme disease, um, but uh, equally difficult to eradicate in the human body once it gets a, a foothold. There's other things as well. Um, so we have to know to look for these other illnesses, these other pathogens when we look for Lyme disease, and we need trials that, that address those as well. So the trials we had, yes, they say that longer courses didn't work, um, but they didn't consider um, that these other um, factors that we have to take into account. Well, and and these infections are are treated differently. So if they're just treating Lyme and and ignoring other infections, I would imagine that there would be a lot of symptoms that are left over or created even with the treatment. Yes, there are other other things that show up um, that that will not be um, receptive, that will not not uh, respond to the antibiotics that we used for Lyme disease. Um, beyond that, though. Um, we're also finding that uh, the antibiotics, the common ones, doxycycline in particular, um, the ones that are used to treat acute or early-stage Lyme disease may not be working. Um, there's a wealth of scientific um, research coming out of some U.S. universities like um, Northeastern, like Johns Hopkins, um, Tulane, UC Davis, um, they basically have done such things as infect um, animals, um, namely mostly monkeys and mice, or take the, the pathogen in test tubes and then um, uh, expose it to, you know, classic doses of antibiotics that we use in people. And in many of these experiments, they're finding that something called persisters survive um, even after treatment. Um, they are Lyme spirochetes that may take other forms, in particular um, a cyst form, a round body form, it's called. And what's, what's coming out of this research is a consensus that we're not killing the entire load of, of pathogens that you may have when you're infected. And this may very well explain those 10 to 20% who don't get better. They, it, it may explain... The, a chronic form of the disease that uh, continues to relapse, that they, these persisters stay behind. Um, and it calls into question, frankly, our model of treating Lyme disease. Um, that um, research is um, conti- continuing to um, evolve to a point where researchers are now looking into other treatments, other ways that we might try to treat people for Lyme disease. We're a ways away from results from from that research, but it's pointing in a direction that suggests what we're doing right now has flaws for at least a portion of the populace. Yeah, well, I I definitely agree with that. Um, We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Mary Beth Pfeiffer, and we're discussing her book, Lyme, the First Epidemic of Climate Change, and we'll be back shortly. 
opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Mary Beth, Beth Pfeiffer, and she is a, a journalist. Um, Mary Beth, the, the, your book that we're talking about is called Lime, the First Epidemic of Climate Change. And I'm just wondering if you can explain to us why climate change is important for us to note in this whole scheme of Lyme disease. Well, climate change um, didn't cause this Lyme disease epidemic that we have, but it most certainly is um, helping it and abetting it and moving it to, to many new frontiers. Um, Canada, for one, is a new frontier for Lyme disease. I know it's been there um, in the southern portions in particular for, for a while, but it's now moving further and further north, as it is in um, uh, Sweden and Norway and Russia, as it already has in the United States. And part of the reason for that is that it's getting warmer. Um, we have evidence that ticks, for example, um, in the um, Czech Republic, in what is now the Czech Republic in 1958, couldn't go higher in the Alps than something like 800 meters. We now find them at 1,200 meters. That is sort of a, a microcosm of what is happening around the world. It's warmer uh, on the top of that mountain than it was um, 50 years ago. It's warmer in Canada now than it was, you know, several decades ago. We see this happening, this sort of this correlation between warmth and outbreaks and, and spread of tick-borne um, illness and ticks themselves. Um, so I call my, my book The First Epidemic of Climate Change for this reason. We know that that climate change is also pushing other diseases around and fostering other diseases. Things like um, yellow fever or um, plague, um, dengue fever, um, West Nile virus. It is a very long list. Um, but what's different um, between those diseases um, and Lyme disease is that Lyme really exploded just as climate change was coming to the fore, just as it sort of reached that, that critical mass. We became aware of it in the um, 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, and it has continued really to, on the, the coattails of climate change, to really grow and blossom. It's also huge. Um, so so it, it, the, the fact that it's moving around, the fact that it's being caught, uh, driven by climate change and the size of it is what makes me call it the first epidemic of climate change. It's in many other countries um, besides North America. It's in South America. It's emerging there. 
Um, it's well established in Western Europe. Um, and as I said, um, China, Russia, Australia even is having a problem with Lyme disease. Well, you know, in, in your book, you, you start talking about what's going to happen as, as our climate is changing. And, you know, it, it's going to be in my lifetime that, that this is everywhere um, from, from what your book is saying. And, and that, that is terrifying that, you know, and this is why I said everybody should read this because we are all being effect, going to be affected by this if we haven't yet. Yes. Um, it's moving. These ticks are moving to more, more places than, um, than not. And what I mean by that is there is some potential that it'll get too hot for ticks in some places to survive. But they have not um, really um, validated or verified that that has happened yet, that tick populations have contracted in some places. So, um, uh, for example, I'm go- I-, I was in um, Arizona a couple of weeks ago. I mean, you think, you think Arizona, you think desert and cactus and so forth. But they have Lyme disease, um, primarily in mountainous areas, um, in areas where there is a lot of um, uh, green growth and so forth, um, and where it's a little bit more temperate, a little bit more humid. Um, ticks like humidity um, as much as I, they like warmth. Um, so, so it's there where you would not expect it to be. I'm going out to Colorado next week. Uh, it's not generally accepted to be there by the medical community. But there is a, a fervent Lyme disease group out there that says we have been infected and we've been infected here where you don't think ticks and, and Lyme disease lives. Well, I, I can believe that because they're not far from where we are and they have the same climate and the same altitude um, yeah. that we do in, in Calgary here. Um, you know, one, th- one thing you talk about in your book, which I, I think might be important for people to understand, is how the the ticks are getting to where they're getting to. Like, uh, you know, are they crawling there or what's actually happening? Yeah, that was a, a really fascinating st- study for my book. Um, I have a... Um, a chapter on birds and the role that birds, migrating birds in particular, um, play in this epidemic. And we have things called flyways, migratory flyways. And um, there's, for example, the Atlantic flyway, which goes from um, way South America all the way up through the eastern United States and up into Canada. We have the Pacific flyway. We have the Mississippi flyway. You get the idea. The, the birds come from way, way far south. And they may stop along the way. Uh, They may bring a tick um, from far south, or they may pick one up. Um, In the U.S., for example, they arrive in Canada to the places usually where they they fledged, and um, they will drop ticks. Now, we know that birds have been doing this for very many, many years, thousands of years. They picked up ticks, the ticks dropped, and the ticks died uh, in the places they were dropped. But today... They are surviving. Um, they are um, thriving, in fact, and breeding. Um, beyond the role played by birds, and birds are also doing this in Europe. They're crossing, you know, the North Sea. They 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 can um, travel very far far over water in order to drop ticks hither and yon. But beyond um, the role of birds, we also see in Canada um, mice are moving north. Um, a different kind of mouse called the white-footed mouse is um, taking root in many places further north than it could formerly survive. So mice are also carrying it. Um, deer move it around, of course, to an extent, um, but birds are, are really the, the chief way that, um, that ticks are, are traveled uh, long distances and um, find new homes and new happy places for them to live. <laughs> Well, you know, and, and it does it does make sense. I mean, reading about that study and and it, it said that the there was a prevalence of Lyme along those those uh, travel ways for the birds. Um, yes, I read and, that one. That was an interesting study. Yeah, um, you know, and it it. it when you think about it, it does make sense. So when doctors say we don't have it here and, and um, you know, it can't be, and then you look, well, these animals don't understand borders, <laughs> you know. Yes, they're not exactly. they're not looking at the border going, oh, we can't go there. They don't have any Lyme. You right. know, they're, they're just doing what they do, and um, we're turning a blind eye to it. 
Yes, and that, that study, by the way, which I, I really loved, I, you, you find, find these sort of nuggets of information in um, the scientific literature um, that I just find fascinating. That was a, a study of, of um, reports of Lyme disease in dogs. So veterinarians had reported where um, dogs were infected. And um, a very astute researcher by the name of John Scott, he's Canadian, looked at uh, the mapping of where infections occurred in dogs. And lo and behold, he found that they more or less mirrored the migratory flyway. So he made the, <laughs> the connection between infection and, and the flyways. Um, and he made it in dogs. And I'd also add that um, it's a lot easier to be diagnosed with Lyme disease if you are a dog because the threshold, that, that, that two-tier test, is not what is counted or used, but rather it's, a, it's an easier way to diagnose in dogs than it is in human beings. Well, I, I always um, tell people that we should get the the vets and the doctors together to talk about whether or not we have Lyme disease here and see what happens. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, because the vets will definitely say, you know, we're reporting cases, the dogs have it, it's happening, and the doctors are saying it doesn't even exist, which is a little, it, I mean, it, obviously it has to if the dogs are, are having reported cases in the same province where yeah. the doctors are saying we don't have it. And again, I think that goes back to the, the controversies that have swirled around Lyme disease. And on the testing, I would also just tell, tell you one more uh, discovery that, that I made in the scientific literature. I, I found basically that there were 30 papers in the literature about people who had been wrongly diagnosed with Lyme disease, about the overdiagnosis or false diagnosis of Lyme disease. I could only find five on underdiagnosis of Lyme disease, which we know is every bit as serious, I think more serious, a problem than overdiagnosis. If you are wrongly diagnosed with Lyme disease, and it does happen, you may be given a short course of antibiotics and you'll be on your way. Um, this is among the safest drugs that are out there. They shouldn't be abused, they shouldn't be overused, but they are safe drugs. But if your diagnosis is missed, and you aren't treated, you can go on to a, a very long siege of um, disability, of pain, of not being able to go to work, of not being able to get out of bed in the morning. And moreover, your, your search for care will, will be much more complicated because, as you say, doctors don't recognize it where you are. And um, moreover, doctors haven't been given the tool to the tools to treat late stage Lyme disease. They don't know what to do when a late stage Lyme case presents. Um, they give a antibiotics, yes, but um, they give short courses and basically the person is told, well, you have to go to a rheumatologist or you have to go to um, a, a, a psychiatrist or you have to go to another doctor. I, I really can't treat you. I don't know what to do. Um, yeah, I think that's a common story. It, it's, um, you know, part of mine and, and I think anybody else with chronic Lyme and I personally would have welcomed, you know, a, a short course of antibiotics over the, the years of, of suffering that I had. So to, and you know, often doctors, it seems they say, okay, we're going to wait and see if you have symptoms after a bite and, and, you know, which, which I think is, um, more dangerous as you're saying, uh, to wait and to just go, okay, you've been bitten, here's some antibiotics, won't cause any harm. And that's the one thing that patients can do is to advocate for themselves and say, I know that ticks are out there. I may or may not have been uh, bitten, but I have some symptoms. I want to be treated. And here in the U.S., doctors do respond to that sort of thing. I'm not sure it's as clear-cut in Canada. Um, but you know, patients need to advocate for themselves on this disease. Yeah, definitely they do. Now, I'm sure that people that are listening are getting a little worried about what they can do to protect themselves and their family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, I'd say that government has not done enough and healthcare um, officials have not done enough to protect us against this epidemic. Um, 
basically the um, whole um, approach to it has been, okay, we'll put signs at uh, walking trails, hiking trails. Um, We'll make announcements that it's tick season and you need to check yourself. Um, This is all well and good, and this is stuff that that needs to get out there, um, even to a greater extent than it's out there now. Um, But we can do some things to protect ourselves. Um, I write in my book about um, clothing on which um, you can spray or, or you can buy clothing that is already um, treated with something called permethrin. Um, it's a substance, uh, a synthetic form of uh, something that is in chrysanthemum flowers. And it is a very effective deterrent to ticks. Ticks do not like clothing that is um, impregnated or treated with permethrin. So I spent a, a couple hours um, last weekend spraying um, uh, our sneakers, the whole family, my, my grandkids, my, my husband, us, um, sneakers, socks, and some of our pants um, with, um, with this substance. It doesn't wash out immediately. It can, pants and socks, for example, can be um, worn uh, up to six times or, or laundered up to six times before you have to retreat them. And it's been shown to be safe and very effective. I read the, the studies on safety. I was convinced that it is safe for children. Um, so I would highly recommend that. Um, beyond this, you have to, have to stay away from you know, places where ticks um, hang out. Um, tall grasses. Don't brush up against um, the grasses and brush that line a, uh, a walking trail, for example. Um, do check yourself when you come in to make sure you don't have any ticks on you. If you've been walking through an area where you think you might have picked up ticks, throw your clothes in the dryer for 15 minutes. That will kill them. Um, there's also, you know, um, sprays that are on the market um, for properties, um, they do work um, to keep down the population of ticks. I myself am not a fan of spraying chemicals on my property. I would rather get rid of the brush, get rid of the leaves that um, ticks like to hide in, um, keep places sunny and open. Uh, ticks don't like sun because they dry out. Um, so there, there are things we can do. Yeah, perfect. Well, thank you so much for um, sharing all of this. I encourage anybody to uh, pick up your book. Um, can you just let us know where um, that's located or how people can get a hold of you if they have any questions? Okay, well, the book, first of all, can be easily found on Amazon. Um, it's there with a, a lot of reviews and, and good ones, I might add. Um, I have a website called thefirstepidemic.com, and you can find my email there. I, I encourage people to um, contact me with uh, comments and questions. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great, informative show. Thank you, Rebecca. And I want to thank everybody for listening today. Today we're talking with Mary Beth Pfeiffer and her book was Lyme, the First Epidemic of Climate Change. So um, thank you so much for listening and be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week.